morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for these verses we've reached this morning. I think they contain wonderful truths for us. Perhaps I say that every week, but I believe it's true every week, Lord, as we go through your word verse by verse like this. I do thank you for this parable. I thank you for the instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples. That's just as true for us today. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to speak to your people as I, as I labored in the verses over the week. I uh, was encouraged that you knew who would be here, and you knew what you wanted to say to each person, Lord. And so I, I do pray that they, these are the words you have for them, and that you would use me as your vessel to deliver them, Lord. And I, I pray for the people who are here. Give each person a receptive heart. I pray for the believers. A sanctification occurs as the word washes over them. And for the unbelievers, that conviction occurs. We've talked about the second coming and the great justice and judgment that Christ unleashes on the earth. We know that your son, as we've talked about, is, a, is the lamb, but also is the lion, and we desire to encounter him as our Passover lamb, Lord. And so I pray for people who aren't in that situation, that you would save them, that you'd open their hearts to the gospel today. Help us to be attentive. I know all of our lives are busy, Lord. We come here with burdens. I think as Pastor Nathan prayed to open the service, concerns, struggles, issues, and I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us through your word and help us to be attentive and focused on it, even somewhat removing those obstacles from mind for this time so we can hear what you have for us, that we wouldn't be distracted. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the title of this morning's sermon is The Parable of the Persistent Widow and the Unjust Judge. So we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse on Sunday mornings, and we come to Luke 18, verse 1. Now, as I've reminded you before, the chapter breaks, as well as the headings, and the verse numbers are particularly helpful for us, but there is a danger with them that I've shared before. Does anyone remember that danger with the chapter breaks in particular? Well, we've moved to a new chapter, so this chapter must not be related to the previous chapter. And I fell victim to, I fell victim to that this past week. I didn't have this on my notes, but I'll just let you know. I had to rewrite much of my sermon. I had an introduction where I was going to say, how wonderful is it to go through Luke's gospel and encounter these different topics? We finished talking about the second coming, and now we're going to be talking about prayer. And I was wrong because this parable is as much about the second coming as the verses in the previous chapter. Everything Jesus taught in these verses flows from his teaching at the end of Luke 17 on his second coming. Just so you can see that, briefly look at the second half of verse 8. Look at the sec Am I cutting in and out? Briefly look at the second half of verse 8 and to notice the words, when the Son of Man comes. That is the context for this parable. This parable is related to Jesus' second coming. One commentator wrote, this parable serves as a concluding illustration to Luke 17, 22 to 37 about Jesus' second coming. You know that I'll frequently try to listen to some sermons on a passage during the week that I'm preparing preaching it, and I listened to John MacArthur's sermon on this parable, and it was titled, Persistent Prayer for the Lord's Return. So as we go through these verses be thinking about the relationship that they hold to the second coming, which will become a little more evident toward the end of the sermon. So here's what's going on. Jesus knew that as his disciples waited for his second coming, as he talked about in the end of the previous chapter, they could become discouraged. They did not think he would leave them. 
Peter tried to pull Jesus aside and convince Jesus that he would not go to the cross. Even at that very last moment when he goes to the cross, the disciples don't do anything but flee and panic because it was the last thing from their minds that they expected. And so as they wait for Jesus to return to them, something they never expected for him to depart in the first place, he knows they can become discouraged, they can lose heart, they can even begin to doubt, and so look what he says in verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they notice this, they ought always to pray, and then notice this, and not lose heart. It is a theme in scripture that we ought always to pray. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Now, when I was Catholic, I was pretty convinced that there was only one way to pray, and it's kneeling down, and what else? Kneeling down, eyes closed, and your hands like that. Maybe like this if you're being kind of liberal, but this or this. I remember one time a friend wanted to pray with me, and I'm not joking about this. I told him that we couldn't pray at that time because we couldn't kneel anywhere. When I became a Christian, I learned that we didn't have to pray this way, but then I read verses like this that say we ought always to pray or pray without ceasing or be constant in prayer, And I found myself confused again, even as a Christian, because I thought, how can I do this? How can I pray all the time? If I pray all the time, I'm not going to have time to eat. I'm not going to have time to work. I'm not even going to have time to sleep. Because I think most of us know that when we want to fall back asleep, what do we tend to do? Pray. Am I the only one that does that? When I wake up and I want to fall back asleep, I will start praying. I will start praying for my... I actually had to reverse the order I pray for my children because Rhea, Ricky, Johnny were getting a ton of prayer. (laughs) Serious. So I had reversed it and started at the other end. (laughs) So anyway, we're not praying when we're sleeping. Sometimes if you're like me, we're praying to fall asleep. And so it begs the question, how can we pray all the time? Like Jesus says, we ought always to pray. How can that be the case for us? We are not expected, literally, to pray all the time or we wouldn't have the time to do anything else in our lives. And so this brings us to lesson one. Ought always to pray involves a disposition toward God. Ought always to pray involves a disposition, a sensitivity, a receptiveness toward God. There is a place for concentrated prayer times, like our 9 a.m. prayer time, which I would love to see more of you attend, if I can put in a plug for that. But this also refers to a receptive disposition toward God. I'll give you an example that I believe illustrates this. When we were in California, I've shared before about some dear friends of ours, Pat and Kathy Mundy. They were our premarital counselors. Katie lived with us before we were married. Katie, or Kathy succumbed to, to cancer a few years ago, as I had shared with you. Well, when we were in California, I was with Pat one time. We're sitting there, and I noticed that he notices something, and he was a cop, and I said, what's going on? And he said, and I'm, he said that guy doesn't look right, and I looked, at the, I looked at the guy, and the guy looked fine to me. Well, Pat shared with me, as a cop, you're always looking around at people and situations, seeing if things seem off. Even though I am off-duty, I can never really be off-duty. And I remember that because it's basically the same for who? 
for us. There is no such thing as an off-duty Christian, right? It's not like the taxi cab where, the, where it turns off and you're no longer on duty. Which is to say, even when we are off-duty and we might not be praying, we are still on duty in the sense that we have not flipped a switch and started ignoring God. We are not out of communion with God. Instead, we still have this receptive disposition toward him. We're sensitive to him, what he wants for us. We are ready to seek him in the situations that we face. We're striving to make decisions that please him. Last Sunday night, Pastor Nathan was teaching through 1 Samuel 3, which is probably a familiar account to many of you. That is when Samuel kept waking up in the middle of the night because God was calling to him, but he thought it was who? He thought it was Eli. Do you guys remember that account? Samuel, young boy, being raised in the temple, keeps waking up because he hears a voice calling to him. He believes it's Eli, the priest. He keeps running to Eli. It happens, and Eli says, it's not me. Go back to bed. The third time that it happens, Eli says, recognizes that it's actually God removing Eli and reaching out to the boy Samuel. And so Eli tells Samuel, the next time God calls to you, recognize it's him. 1 Samuel 3.10. So Samuel does it. The Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Now Samuel's ready for it. And he said what? Speak for your servant hears. And I really like that verse because it captures, as Pastor Nathan explained last Sunday night, this disposition that we should have toward God. Even when we're not praying, our attitude is still, speak for your servant hears. Now, obviously, we don't hear audibly from God like Samuel did, but we do know God's word. We do hear God's word in our, in our minds or in our hearts when we're entertaining situations. And so our response should be, Lord, speak to me through your word. Bring verses to mind for me that direct my decisions and my choices because your servant hears. I am your servant even if I'm not in a concentrated prayer time right now. We're going about our daily lives, doing the thing God wants us to do. We're at our jobs. We're going to school. We're spending time with family. We're talking with friends. We're having a meal. And we are always receptive to what God wants and sensitive to his will for our lives. Now, Jesus also mentions one of the most common temptations when praying. Notice it. He said we could lose heart. I don't know about you. I find it particularly encouraging that Jesus had to tell the disciples not to lose heart when praying because I know that I am very susceptible to that. And this brings us to lesson two. We can lose heart when praying because it is hard work. We can lose heart when praying because it is hard work. One of the main reasons that we quit or give up on anything is because it is difficult. We're raising our children, and one of the first lessons we have to teach them is not to quit because it is difficult. As a pastor, one of the most common things you might have to tell people in the church is don't quit because it is difficult. There can be a season where it's appropriate to step back from something, but if someone comes to talk to me and they're entertaining stopping simply because it's difficult, that's usually a bad reason to cease serving. Now, it's very easy to lose heart when praying because prayer is difficult. Every time we pray, it is a spiritual battle. Let me just say that one more time. Every single time we pray or commune with God, 
that is a spiritual battle. There is a God who wants us to pray, and there is a devil and a world and our flesh that doesn't want us to. Listen to this verse. Romans 15.30, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. In this important part, Paul says, I appeal to you to strive together with me. Now, I'm going to pause here. This is not the end of the verse. The Greek word for strive, it's agonizomai. Agonizomai. The first four letters are A-G-O-N. What word comes to mind when I say, what English word comes to mind when I say the Greek word agonizomai? Yeah, agony, agonizing. It means to enter a contest or fight. So Paul is asking his readers to join him in doing something difficult or even agonizing. Now, what is it that he would be inviting them to strive to do with him? Strive together with me in giving financially till it hurts. Strive together with me against temptation. Maybe strive together with me in being persecuted for Christ. It's not any of those. Listen to this. I appeal to you, brothers, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul asked them to strive together or agonize with him in prayer of all things. Did you know that prayer is agonizing? Here's another example. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, a servant of Christ Jesus, who always struggles on your behalf in prayer that you may stand mature and fully assured. Paul praised Epaphras because he's always struggling in prayer. And again, that word for struggle is agonizomai. He's always agonizing in prayer for you. I'll share another story with you from when I was Catholic. My dad taught us numerous prayers when I was growing up, and we, or at least I was prouder the more prayers that I had been able to, Catholic prayers I'd been able to memorize as a child. And I would recite these prayers numerous times, but especially before bed. Reciting prayers is not hard work. It does not involve striving or agonizing. If there is anything, or if there at least for me was anything difficult about reciting my Catholic prayers, it was just the boringness of it. I could zip through all my prayers without ever thinking about what I was saying. I could say an entire rosary, sadly, worshiping Mary, without or with my mind being elsewhere. I became a Christian. I read Jesus' well-known words, Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, do not what? (laughs) Do not recite, do not heap up empty words. Or phrases like the Gentiles do, they think they'll be heard for their many words. So I had to completely change the way I prayed. I could no longer recite or say the same things, or as Jesus warned against, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So I had to concentrate. I had to focus. I had to pay attention to what I was saying. I found it to be incredibly difficult. Very early on in my Christian life, my prayers sounded like this, and probably still do sometimes, to be honest. Father, please help me serve you well. Oh, wait, when I get home, I need to respond to that email. Oh, Lord, can you help me become more like Christ? Should I train Chester back today? God, will you please help me teach my students well? Oh, that reminds me I still need to mow the lawn, something I hate doing because of my allergies. So in other words... My prayer was constantly 
interrupted by nagging distractions, something I never experienced when I was reciting prayers in the Catholic Church. Well, why is that? Because prayer is difficult. It's agonizing. It's striving. It's pushing everything else out of our hearts and minds to focus on Christ, or as Paul says, to labor on behalf of someone else. There's a reason prayer meetings are not well attended, or there's a reason prayer meetings are the least well-attended events churches put on. It's easy when we're praying to lose heart. What could we wonder? Well, will my prayers really accomplish anything? I'm agonizing this is difficult. Is it for any reason at all? Am I wasting my time? How long do I have to keep praying like this? We could even wonder, should I keep praying for this? So Jesus preaches this parable to encourage his disciples, including all of us, to be persistent and to not give up when we pray. And with that in mind, look at me at verse 2. Paul said, or Paul, Jesus says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This judge is evil and corrupt. Just to be clear, he does not represent God, okay? To say he neither feared God nor respected man is to say that he disobeyed the two greatest commandments. Does that make sense? It's repeated multiple times in this, so I just want to make sure we understand it, that he neither feared God or respected man, which is to say he had no regard for the two greatest commandments, which are what? If we make it simple, love and love man. Now, here's the thing, and Jesus says this, Matthew, Mark 12, 29, the most important commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, The second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. No greater commandments than these, Jesus said. Now, here's what I want you to notice. If he has no regard for God and no regard for man, this is important, he has no regard for justice. And you need to keep this in mind. Because if he has regard for man, even if he doesn't have regard for God, he will still have a regard for justice because even atheists want to see justice served, right? Right? How many atheists or unbelievers have been outraged when they saw something they thought was unjust? So even if you have no regard for God, but you have regard for man, you still have regard for justice. Now, if you have no regard for man, but at least you have regard for God, you still have regard for justice because you have regard to please God. But if you have neither regard for man or regard for God, you have no regard for justice, which is the case with this man. Now, the problem is, and this sets up the confrontation, you have a widow who has immense regard for justice. That's what she wants more than anything else. And she happens to be in the same city. I just think Jesus is a marvelous teacher. If you'll, la- if you'll labor over verses, there will be so many marvelous little details that come up that help you appreciate the, the fantastic teacher that Jesus was. So in this city is a corrupt judge, and in this city there happened to be this widow who wants justice. Look at verse 3. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to this judge and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now, before we focus on this verse, I want to explain an important point about parables that I hope you will keep in mind whenever you read parables, and sometimes even narratives in general. We don't have to worry about details we're not given. If you're not given the detail, then you don't need to worry about it. 
Parables are not supposed to answer all the questions that we might have about the situation that they describe. Instead, they're supposed to drive home one or sometimes two main points. The smaller details have nothing to do with those points, and so we ignore them. In fact, and I've watched this happen, when people drill down into parables too much or try to come up with details that aren't given, that they infer or imagine, they come away with lessons that are not intended to be taught by the parable or by those imaginary details that they conjected. Now, in this account, why am I telling you this? Because in this parable, we have some examples. What is the injustice that's committed against the widow? We never find out, which means what? We don't have to worry about it. (laughs) Who's the adversary? She's upset with. We don't know, so we never need to worry about it. But I will remind you of one detail that is important to this parable that Jesus' listeners would have understood. In Christ's day, widows were the picture of what? They were the picture of what? Weakness, vulnerability, desperate, desperate situations, and so it was very easy to take advantage of them. Think about Jesus condemning the scribes. Luke 20, verse 46, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. That's Jesus' strong condemnation for the scribes. They were taking advantage of widows, devouring their houses. But this guy's a judge, so we expect more from him. I mean, this is what he does. He deals with justice. That's his job. So he's going to help, right? Look at verse 4. For a while he refused... And just pause there. This is much worse than it looks. I I want you to understand this. It's much worse than it looks because of the attention that God gives to widows throughout his word. In fact, few things are worse, believe it or not, than what this judge is doing. Or let's say what this judge is not doing, which is helping a widow because of the attention God wants widows to receive. Just a few verses of lots of verses that I could give you. Deuteronomy 14, 28, it was commanded in the law at the end of every three years, bring out all the tithe of your produce and the widow within your towns shall come and eat. The prophets commanded it, care for widows. Isaiah 1, 17, do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And even that, why do you have to plead the widow's cause? Because the widow can't please her cause herself. And when the people would not plead the widow's cause, a few verses later in Isaiah 1, that was Isaiah 1, 17, because the people were not pleading the widow's cause, in verse 23 of the same chapter, the prophet Isaiah condemns the people, your princes and rebels are companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe, everyone runs after gifts, they don't bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. In other, in other words, they weren't. They were not pleading the widow's cause. The New Testament, we're told to help widows. James 1.27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their their affliction. So when the judge, someone who should have helped the widow, didn't, it makes him look much worse than we might imagine. Now, as a widow, she clearly doesn't have a husband. And the fact that she's the one who went to the judge tells us that she more than likely also did not have any children, or in particular sons, 
to help her, so it's entirely on her shoulders. And she's got a problem. Verse 6 tells us that the judge is unjust or unrighteous. What that means is he's a judge who is open to bribes. A corrupt or unjust judge, which would be common in Jesus' day, would be a judge who's open to be bribed. And he would not help those who did not have money to bribe him. Well, what does this widow not have? She doesn't, she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have sons. She doesn't have money to bribe an unjust judge who's then going to ignore her. This widow has one thing and one thing only at her disposal. Any guesses what that is? An annoying nature. <laughs> her persistence, if that's what you said. That's what she has at her disposal, and she uses it incredibly well. Look at the rest of verse 4, until the judge finally gives in. Afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that, notice this, she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So we, interestingly, we can tell that the widow's claim was just. The judge put her off, not because she didn't have a case, but because he's unjust, but her persistence paid off. So this is what I picture. I confess this is a little speculative, but he goes to the marketplace to shop, and what happens? She comes up to him. She goes to, he goes to the public square, and what happens? She comes up to him. He's at the gate of the city with the other leaders. She comes up to him. He leaves her home. She's there to meet him. Maybe she goes up to his home. Wherever he goes, she is relentless. It never stops until finally he gives in because of how annoying she is. So this is what's particularly sad. Even when the judge helped her, he was helping himself. (laughs) He didn't care about her. He just cared about her stopping. He wants to get rid of her. And now we get the interpretation of the parable. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, which is Jesus' way of saying, listen to the point of this parable. Verse 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Now, even though the judge doesn't represent God, we are represented in this parable. Let me say that one more time. Even though the judge doesn't represent God, we are represented by what? The widow. He makes the connection between the widow and the elect. That's us. And this brings us to lesson three. The widow represents us to an extent. The widow represents us to an extent. Not completely, but to an extent. The words cry to him day and night. Who else cries out? The way she cried to this judge, who else cries out? We do. Romans 8, 15. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoptions of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The widow's a fitting picture of us in two ways. First, the widow was completely helpless to remedy her situation. And who else is completely helpless to do anything about their situation? We are. Second, the widow was at the mercy of this judge. 
and we are at the mercy of our judge, God. But I've told you before that every picture or type breaks down, and it is the same with this widow. Although her situation resembles ours in some ways, there are plenty of other ways in which our situation is immensely better than her situation. For example, she had little access to this judge. He wants to ignore her. He wants to, her to leave him alone. He wants nothing to do with her. In her time of need, she receives no mercy, no grace. You can probably see where I'm going. But Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This woman has no advocate. There's nobody to speak for her. Our case, 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. She deals with a judge who's unjust. We deal with a God who is just. She deals with a judge who is cruel. We deal with a God who's compassionate, gracious, and kind. She's a widow. She's unloved. She has no husband. We, as a member of the church, the bride of Christ, have him as our loving husband. So interestingly, there's some ways she resembles our situation and other ways in which her situation is the exact opposite of ours. But with that, I want to tell you the part of this parable that is the most encouraging to me personally, the part that I was the most blessed thinking about this week, and it's found in one word in verse 8, and that is the word elect. Elect. So I'm going to tell you what that means to me. That means that God has chosen me. For reasons I don't understand, God has elected Scott LaPierre. He has chosen me to be his child, to have my sins forgiven in Christ. Few biblical truths bless me more than knowing that I am one of God's elect. I know that God will not unelect me. So I'm incredibly confident in my wife's commitment to me. I'm even more confident in the Lord's commitment to me. God will not unchoose me. He will not take his spirit from me. I will not be unborn after being born again. So when I look at this rejected widow, it is the exact opposite in my situation. I am chosen. I could have been rejected, but God has accepted me, brought me to be his son. My salvation, guess what it doesn't rest on? My goodness, my self-righteousness, my worth, my works, my effort. My salvation lies in my election, the fact that God has chosen me. Now you're sitting here and maybe you say, how can I be one of God's elect? I'm going to tell you the same thing that Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer when he asked a very similar question. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You want to be one of God's elect? Repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, which is synonymous with being one of God's elect. Now look at our last verse. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now I have to tell you, this parable is commonly misunderstood. I'm going to tell you the common misinterpretation of this parable, and then I will tell you the correct interpretation of the parable. 
the common misinterpretation of the parable goes like this. The persistent widow kept bothering the unjust judge until he finally gave her what she wanted because of her persistence, even though he had no regard for her. How much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you, answer your prayers if you will be persistent with him? So keep praying, be persistent until God gives you what you want. Now, I'm not denying that there is something to be said for persistence in prayer. I mean, that's part of what Jesus said in verse 1. But that's not primarily what this parable is about. And you can tell that this is not the correct interpretation of the parable by carefully looking at verses 6 through 8. If that was the correct interpretation of the parable, this is how verses 6 through 8 would read. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God answer his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will answer them speedily. Instead of being about God answering our prayers, the parable is primarily about God giving justice. And this brings us to lesson four. The parable is primarily about God giving his people justice. There's something to be said for persistence in prayer, but this parable is primarily about God executing justice. Notice the word justice occurs four times. In verse 3, the widow says, give me justice against my adversary. Verse 5, the judge finally says, I will give her justice. Verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect? And then verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The parable is primarily about a persistent widow seeking justice and an unjust judge giving it to her. The judge was described so terribly to establish a how much more than situation. So the idea is, if an unjust judge can be persuaded to give justice to a woman he has no regard for, then how much more will God, who is just, give justice to his elect whom he loves? Now the question is, when is God going to give this justice? Well, the answer is contained for us in verse 8, if you look there with me. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Did you see it there? When does God provide this justice, or when is this justice executed? When the Son of Man comes, or at his second coming. And do you see how this connects back to the end of Luke 17? So the end of Luke 17 is about the Son of Man coming or Jesus' second coming. And I just want to ask you to think about this. Give me your attention. What is more associated with justice than Jesus' second coming? Isn't the second coming more than anything else about justice and Jesus? Defeating his enemies? Executing justice on the earth as he destroys all of those unrepentant, Christ-hating people? I'd say few things have as much to do with justice as the second coming. It is above all about Jesus executing justice. If you were here for last Sunday's sermon, you remember it's literally the bloodiest sermon I've ever preached, not because we talked so much about the crucifixion, but because we talked so much about the battle of Armageddon. 
we zoomed in on that battle, the carnage is incredible. And that is Jesus carrying out justice on the earth and then setting up his kingdom and establishing his perfect justice over the earth. Now, the second half of verse 8 looks to Jesus' second coming, but some of you might have even noticed that the first half of verse 8, more subtly, also looks to the second coming with the word speedily. Do you guys remember us talking about that and how important that word is? It's the word tahos, T-A-C-H-O-S, related to the word ta- our word tachometer. It means quickly, suddenly. Here it's translated speedily. In chapter 17, it was translated as quickly. And the idea is Jesus, so I said preterists, misunderstand this word and translate it as soon, or the word is sometimes translated as soon, but it means quickly. And so when Jesus sometimes says, I'm coming soon, he means I'm coming tahas, quickly, suddenly, unexpectedly. People will not have time to prepare. They will not have time to repent at the second coming. When the lightning flashes across the sky, that's too late. So we see wickedness around us. We want justice. And what do we wonder sometimes? Why doesn't God execute that justice? Why doesn't he remove or judge the wickedness that we see? If we're honest, sometimes we wonder if God is going to do anything about it. And that was one of the most common questions, or if I'm a little stronger, complaints or criticisms of God in the Old Testament. I said this before, so I don't want to belabor the point, but the way some Bible-hating, Christ-rejecting people criticize God is by criticizing his word and saying, oh, the Old Testament, oh, all the judgment, all of the blood, this supposed God of love wiping out all these people. He's so hateful. That's not the God I believe in. What was the most common or one of the most common criticisms of God in the Old Testament? You let the wicked prosper. Why don't you do anything about it? Job defended himself to his friends by saying, you can't be right because if the righteous suffer, Or if I'm suffering because I'm unrighteous, why do I see all these unrighteous people prospering? The psalmist writes in Psalm 73, the wickedness of the prosperity of the wicked has been so strong, my feet have almost stumbled. I'm seeing so many wicked people prospering. I almost can't believe that you're righteous, God. Habakkuk says, why would you allow the wicked Jews to prosper the way they do? They're your people. So the common complaint against God was that he didn't judge, was that he was too patient, too long-suffering. So here's another way to look at it. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, there have been people like this widow who cry out to the judge for justice. There have been people like this widow throughout all of human history who don't understand why justice is not being executed the way they believe that it should. So one of the other questions you might have is, How does this work for us when we don't always get the justice in this life that we desire to see? Well, that's true, that we don't always see justice in this life. We see mistreatment, we see rejection, betrayal, we see good people suffer, we see wicked people prosper. It's important to understand that the justice that God's elect, that you and me receive, might not be in this life. It may be in eternity. Persistent prayer for justice, which this parable is instructing, means a persistent faith 
even to the end. Those who pray persistently, even to the end of their lives, will experience vindication. But it might not be in this life. It might be in the next, or it might be after this life is over for them. For most of us, Christ very well might not, or probably won't return in our lifetimes. Now look at the second half of verse 8 again. It says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And this brings us to lesson 5. Do we have faith like the widow? Lesson 5, do we have faith like the widow? Now sometimes people read verse 8 because it says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And they do this. They say, like they see things getting worse and worse in our world, and I'm not denying that they are. But they get worse and worse, and then people will quote this verse, and they say, when God returns, is he even going to find any believers on the earth? I mean, look what he says here. He might not find faith. If there's no faith, there's no saints. That's not what this verse means. If there were no believers on the earth, there would be nobody to enter Christ's kingdom. If you just briefly look at Luke 17, one chapter to the left, verse 34, Luke 17, 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. I shared in last Sunday's sermon that those taken are taken in judgment like those taken by the flood are taken in judgment, and those left are righteous people who are left to enter Christ's kingdom. Well, if there's no faith left on the earth, then there's nobody left to enter Christ's kingdom. So that's clearly what not... Clearly not what Jesus is saying. He's not literally wondering if there will be any believers when he returns. He would know the answer to that question and wouldn't need to wonder it anyway. Instead, Jesus is asking if there will be faith like the widow had, faith like hers. When he returns, will he find faith that longs for justice like the widow longed for justice? When he returns, will he find faith that is persistent, like the widow was persistent? So the end of the parable is intended to connect back to the beginning. Like in verse 7, when it says, cry to him day and night. Cry to him day and night is synonymous with ought always to pray, because day and night is always, right? So another way to interpret verse 8 is to connect it to verse 1, and Jesus is saying, Will I find faith that continues to pray as we always ought to pray, or will I find faith that loses heart, becomes discouraged, and gives up? Will I find faith that is as persistent for justice as this widow was? Now, I want to conclude with this. You can have a nagging question, especially if you're interpreting this parable correctly for the first time, and maybe that's the case for you. Maybe you've heard this parable taught, and it's always like this. Like I said earlier, be persistent, be persistent in prayer, persist enough, God will answer your prayer. But now you understand that this parable is primarily about being persistent for justice. And so then you say this, basically, if I make it simple, why the delay? I can understand why an unjust judge in a parable delays and doesn't execute justice because he's unjust. But if our God is just, why isn't he executing justice now? Here's the answer. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, 
as some count slowness, but he is patient or he delays because he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why does God delay? Why has God not already executed justice? He wants more people to be saved. He's waiting for more people to repent. I'll tell you what, I'm super glad God delayed until I could become a Christian. Amen. Aren't you glad that God delayed until you could become a Christian? So if you sit here today as one of God's elect, that is wonderful. But if not, do not presume on God's patience. At some patience, at some point, that patience is going to come to an end and he will be executing justice on the earth. You will want to have repented and believed in Christ at that time. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be at front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this parable. I thank you for this widow's persistence in this parable and the example it sets for us. I thank you for your justice, Lord. I thank you that it wasn't executed or carried out until I became a Christian, and I believe I say that on behalf of the rest of the saints here, Lord. And so we thank you for your patience and long-suffering nature so we could come to repentance and faith. I would pray for any here who are testing your patience and their unbelief, that you would save them, that you'd grant, open their hearts to the gospel, Lord, that you would grant them faith and repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.